Chapter Thirty Four, Part Two of East Lynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sally McConnell. East Lynn by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter Thirty Four, Part Two. An MP for West Lynn. Now it turned out that Miss Corney had been standing at her own window, grimly eyeing the ill-doings of the street, from the fine housemaid opposite who was enjoying a flirting interview with the baker, to the ragged urchins pitch-purling in the gutter and the dust. And there she caught sight of the string, justices and others, who came flowing out of the office of Mr. Carlyle. So many of them were they, that Miss Corney involuntarily thought of a conjurer flinging flowers out of a hat. The faster they come, the more, it seems, there are to come. "'What on earth is up?' cried Miss Corney, pressing her nose flat against the pane that she might see better. They filed off, some one way, some another. Miss Carlyle's curiosity was keener than her appetite, for she stayed on the watch although just informed that her dinner was served. Presently Mr. Carlyle appeared, and she knocked at the window with her knuckles. He did not hear it. He had turned off at a quick pace toward home. Miss Corney's temper rose. The clerks came out next, one after another, and the last was Mr. Dill. He was less hurried than Mr. Carlyle had been, and heard Miss Corney's signal. "'What in the name of wonder did all that stream of people want at the office?' began she, when Mr. Dill had entered in obedience to it. "'That was the deputation, Miss Cornelia.' "'What deputation?' "'The deputation to Mr. Archibald. They want him to become their new member.' "'Member of what?' cried she, not guessing at the actual meaning. "'Of Parliament, Miss Corney, to replace Mr. Attlee.' The gentleman came to solicit him to be put in nomination. Solicit a donkey! irascibly uttered Miss Corney, for the tidings did not meet her approbation. Did Archibald turn them out again? He gave them no direct answer, ma'am. He will consider of it between now and tomorrow morning. Consider of it? shrieked she. Why, he'd never, never be such a flat as to comply. He go into Parliament? What next? Why should he not, Miss Corney? I'm sure I should be proud to see him there. Miss Corney gave a sniff. Hmm, you are proud of things more odd than even John Dill. Remember that fine shirt front. What has become of it? Is it laid up in lavender? Not exactly in lavender, Miss Corney. It lies in the drawer, for I have never liked to put it on since, after what you said. Why don't you sell it at half price, and buy a couple of good useful ones with the money? returned she tartly. Better than keep the foppish thing as a witness of your folly. Perhaps he'll be buying embroidered fronts next, if he goes into that idle do-nothing house of commons, I'd rather enter myself for six months at the treadmill. Oh, Miss Corney, I don't think you have well considered it. 
It's a great honour, and worthy of him. He will be elevated above us all, as it were, and he deserves to be. Elevate him on a weathercock, raged Miss Corney. There, you may go. I've heard quite enough. Brushing past the old gentleman, leaving him to depart or not, as he might please, Miss Carlyle strode upstairs, flung on her shawl and bonnet, and strode down again. Her servant looked considerably surprised, and addressed her as she crossed the hall. "'Your dinner, ma'am,' he ventured to say. "'What's my dinner to you?' returned Miss Corney in her wrath. "'You have had yours.' Away she strode, and thus it happened that she was at East Lynn almost as soon as Mr. Carlyle. "'Where's Archibald?' began she without ceremony the moment she saw Barbara. "'He is here.' Is anything the matter? Mr. Carlyle, hearing the voice, came out, and she pounced upon him with her tongue. What's this about your becoming the new member for West Lynn? West Lynn wishes it, said Mr. Carlyle. Sit down, Cornelia. Sit down yourself, retorted she, keeping on her feet. I want my question answered. Of course, you will decline. On the contrary. I have made up my mind to accept. Miss Corney untied the strings of her bonnet and flung them behind her. Have you counted the cost? she asked, and there was something quite sepulchral in her solemn tone. I have given it consideration, Cornelia, both as regards money and time. The expenses are not worth naming, should there be no opposition. And if there is any... I, groaned Miss Corney, if there is... "'Well, I am not without a few hundred to spare for the playing,' he said, turning upon her the good-humoured light of his fine countenance. Miss Carlyle emitted some dismal groans. "'That ever I should have lived to see this day, to hear money talked of as though it were dirt. And what's to become of your business?' she sharply added. Is that to be let run to rack and ruin while you are kicking up your heels in that wicked London under plea of being at the house night after night? Cornelia, he gravely said, were I dead, Dill could carry on the business just as well as it is being carried on now. I might go into a foreign country for seven years and come back to find the business as flourishing as ever, for Dill could keep it together. And even were the business to drop off, though I tell you it will not do so, I am independent of it. Miss Carlyle faced tartly round upon Barbara. Have you been setting him on to this? I think he made up his mind before he spoke to me. But, added Barbara in her truth, I urged him to accept it. Oh, you did! "'Nicely moped and miserable you'll be here "'if he goes to London for months on the stretch. "'You did not think of that, perhaps.' "'But he would not have me here,' said Barbara, "'her eyelashes becoming wet at the thought, "'as she unconsciously moved to her husband's side. "'He would take me with him.' "'Miss Carlyle made a pause and looked at them alternately. "'Is that decided?' she asked. "'Of course it is.' laughed Mr. Carlyle, willing to joke the subject and his sister into good humour. Would you wish to separate man and wife, Cornelia? She made no reply. 
She rapidly tied her bonnet strings, the ribbons trembling ominously in her fingers. "'You are not going, Cornelia. You must stay to dinner now that you are here. It is ready, and we will talk this further over afterward.' "'This has been dinner enough for me for one day,' spoke she, putting on her gloves. "'That I should have lived to see my father's son throw up his business and change himself into a lazy, stuck-up Parliament man. Do stay and dine with us, Cornelia. I think I can subdue your prejudices, if you will let me talk to you. If you wanted to talk to me about it, why did you not come in when you left the office? cried Miss Corney in a greater amount of wrath than she had shown yet, and there's no doubt that, in his not having done so, lay one of the sore points. I did not think of it, said Mr. Carlyle. I should have come in and told you of it tomorrow morning. I dare say you would, she ironically answered. Good evening to you both. And, in spite of their persuasions, she quitted the house and went stalking down the avenue. Two or three days more, and the address of Mr. Carlyle to the inhabitants of West Lynn appeared in the local papers, while the walls and posts convenient were embellished with various coloured placards. Vote for Carlyle. Carlyle forever. Wonders never cease. Surprises are the lot of man, but perhaps a greater surprise had never been experienced by those who knew what was what, than when it went forth to the world that Sir Francis Levison had converted himself from, from what he was, into a red-hot politician. Had he been offered the post of Prime Minister? Or did his conscience smite him, as was the case with a certain gallant captain renowned in song? Neither the one nor the other. The simple fact was that Sir Francis Levison was in a state of pecuniary embarrassment, and required something to prop him up, some snug sinecure, plenty to get, and nothing to do. Patch himself up he must. But how? He had tried the tables, but luck was against him. He made a desperate venture upon the turf, a grand coup that would have set him on his legs for some time, but the venture turned out the wrong way, and Sir Francis was a defaulter. He then began to think there was nothing for it but to drop into some nice government nest, where, as I have told you, there would be plenty to get and nothing to do. Any place with much to do would not suit him, or he it. He was too empty-headed for work requiring talent. You may have remarked that a man given to Sir Francis Levison's pursuits generally is. He dropped onto something good, or that promised good, nothing less than the secretaryship to Lord Head the Lot, who swayed the ministers in the upper house. But that he was a connection of Lord Head the Lot's, he never would have obtained it, and very dubiously the minister consented to try him. Of course, a condition was that he should enter Parliament the first opportunity, his vote to be at the disposal of the ministry, rather a shaky ministry, and supposed by some to be on its last legs. And this brings us to the present time. In a handsome drawing-room in Eaton Square one sunny afternoon, sat a lady, young and handsome. Her eyes were of violet blue, her hair was auburn, 
her complexion delicate, but there was a stern look of anger amounting to sullenness on her well-formed features, and her pretty foot was beating the carpet in passionate impatience. It was Lady Levison. The doings of the past had been coming home to her for some time now. Past doings, be they good or be they ill, are sure to come home one day or another and bring their fruits with them. In the years past, many years past now, Francis Levison had lost his heart, or whatever the thing might be that with him did duty for one, to Blanche Challoner. He had despised her once to Lady Isabel, as Lord Thomas says in the old ballad, but that was done to suit his own purpose, for he had never at any period cared for Lady Isabel as he had cared for Blanche. He gained her affection in secret. They engaged themselves to each other. Blanche's sister, Lydia Challoner, two years older than herself, suspected it, and taxed Blanche with it. Blanche, true to her compact of keeping it a secret, denied it with many protestations. She did not care for Captain Levison, rather disliked him, in fact. So much the better, was Miss Challoner's reply, for she had no respect for Captain Levison, and deemed him an unlikely man to marry. Years went on, and poor, unhappy Blanche Challoner remained faithful to her love. He played fast and loose with her, professing attachment for her in secret, and visiting at the house. Perhaps he feared an outbreak from her, an exposure that might be anything but pleasant, did he throw off all relations between them. Blanche summoned up her courage and spoke to him, urging the marriage. She had not yet glanced at the fear that his intention of marrying her, had he ever possessed such, was over. Bad men are always cowards. Sir Francis shrank from an explanation, and so far forgot honour as to murmur some indistinct promise that the wedding should be speedy. Lydia Challoner had married and been left a widow, well off. She was Mrs. Waring, and at her house resided Blanche. For the girls were orphans. Blanche was beginning to show symptoms of her nearly thirty years, not the years, but the long-continued disappointment. The heart-burnings were telling upon her. Her hair was thin, her face was pinched, her form had lost its roundness. "'Marry her, indeed!' scoffed to himself Sir Francis Levison. There came to Mrs. Waring's, upon a Christmas visit, a younger sister, Alice Challoner, a fair girl of twenty years. She resided generally with an aunt in the country. Far more beautiful was she than Blanche had ever been, and Francis Levison, who had not seen her since she was a child, fell, as he would have called it, in love with her. Love? He became her shadow. He whispered sweet words in her ear. He turned her head giddy with its own vanity, and he offered her marriage. She accepted him, and preparations for the ceremony immediately began. Sir Francis urged speed, and Alice was nothing loath. And what of Blanche? Blanche was stunned. A despairing stupor took possession of her, and when she woke from it, desperation set in. She insisted upon an interview with Sir Francis, and evaded he could not, though he tried hard. 
Will it be believed that he denied the past? That he met with mocking suavity her indignant reminders of what had been between them? Love! Marriage! Nonsense! Her fancy had been too much at work. Finally, he defied her to prove that he had regarded her with more than ordinary friendship, or had ever hinted at such a thing as a union. She could not prove it. She had not so much as a scrap of paper written on by him. She had not a single friend or enemy to come forward and testify that they heard him breathe to her a word of love. He had been too wary for that. Moreover, there was her own solemn protestations to her sister Lydia that there was not anything between her and Sir Francis Levison. Who would believe her if she veered round now and avowed these protestations were false? No, she found that she was in a sinking ship, one there was no chance of saving. But one chance did she determine to try, an appeal to Alice. Blanche Challoner's eyes were suddenly and rudely opened to the badness of the man, and she was aware now how thoroughly unfit he was to become the husband of her sister. It struck her that only misery could result from the union, and that, if possible, Alice should be saved from entering upon it. Would she have married him herself, then? Yes, but it was a different thing for that fair, fresh young Alice, she had not wasted her life's best years in waiting for him. When the family had gone to rest and the house was quiet, Blanche Challoner proceeded to her sister's bedroom. Alice had not begun to undress. She was sitting in a comfortable chair before the fire, her feet on the fender, reading a love letter from Sir Francis. Alice, I'm come to tell you a story, she said quietly. Will you hear it? In a minute, stop a bit, replied Alice. She finished the perusal of the letter, put it aside, and then spoke again. What did you say, Blanche? A story? Blanche nodded. Several years ago, there was a fair young girl, none too rich, in our station of life. A gentleman, who was none too rich either, sought and gained her love. He could not marry. He was not rich, I say. They loved on in secret, hoping for better times, she wearing out her years and her heart. Oh, Alice, I cannot describe to you how she loved him, how she has continued to love him up to this moment. Through evil report she clung to him tenaciously and tenderly, as the vine clings to its trellis, for the world spoke ill of him. Who was the young lady? interrupted Alice. Is this a fable of romance, Blanche, or a real history? A real history. I knew her. All those years, years and years, I say, he kept leading her on to love, letting her think that his love was hers. In the course of time he succeeded to a fortune, and the bar to their marriage was over. He was abroad when he came into it, but returned home at once, their intercourse was renewed, and her fading heart woke up once more to life. Still the marriage did not come on. He said nothing of it, and she spoke to him. Very soon now, should it be, was his answer, and she continued to live on, in hope. Go on, Blanche, 
cried Alice, who had grown interested in the tale, never suspecting that it could bear a personal interest. Yes, I will go on. Would you believe, Alice, that almost immediately after this last promise, he saw one whom he fancied he should like better, and asked her to be his wife, forsaking the one to whom he was bound by every tie of honour, repudiating all that had been between them, even his own words and promises. How disgraceful! Were they married? They are to be. Would you have such a man? I, returned Alice, quite indignant at the question, it is not likely that I would. That man, Alice, is Sir Francis Levison. Alice Challoner gave a start, and her face became scarlet. How dare you say so, Blanche? It is not true. Who was the girl, pray? She must have traduced him. She has not traduced him, was the subdued answer. The girl was myself. An awkward pause. I know, cried Alice, throwing her head back resentfully. He told me I might expect something of this, that you had fancied him in love with you, and were angry because he had chosen me. Blanche turned upon her with streaming eyes. She could no longer control her emotion. Alice, my sister, all the pride is gone out of me. All the reticence that woman loves to observe as to her wrongs and her inward feelings, I have broken through for you this night. As sure as there is a heaven above us, I have told you the truth. Until you came, I was engaged to Francis Levison. An unnatural scene ensued. Blanche, provoked at Alice's rejection of her words, told all the ill she knew or heard of the man. She dwelt upon his conduct with regard to Lady Isabel Carlyle, his heartless after-treatment of that unhappy lady. Alice was passionate and fiery. She professed not to believe a word of her sister's wrongs, and as to the other stories, they were no affair of hers, she said. What had she to do with his past life? But Alice Challoner did believe. Her sister's earnestness and distress, as she told the tale, carried conviction with them. She did not very much care for Sir Francis. He was not entwined round her heart, as he was round Blanche's. But she was dazzled with the prospect of so good a settlement in life, and she would not give him up. If Blanche broke her heart, why, she must break it. But she need not have mixed taunts and jeers with her refusal to believe. She need not have triumphed openly over Blanche. Was it well done? Was it the work of an affectionate sister? As we sow, so shall we reap. She married Sir Francis Levison, leaving Blanche to her broken heart, or to any other calamity that might grow out of the injustice. And there sat Lady Levison now, her three years of marriage having served to turn her love for St. Francis into contempt and hate. A little boy, two years old, the only child of the marriage, was playing about the room. His mother took no notice of him. She was buried in all-absorbing thought, thought which caused her lips to contract and her brow to scowl. Sir Francis entered, his attitude lounging, his air listless. 
Lady Levison roused herself, but no pleasant manner of tone was hers, as she set herself to address him. "'I want some money,' she said. "'So do I,' he answered. An impatient stamp of the foot and a haughty toss. "'And I must have it! I must! I told you yesterday that I must. Do you suppose I can go on without a sixpence of ready money day after day?' "'Do you suppose it is of any use to put yourself in this fury?' retorted Sir Francis. "'A dozen times a week do you bother me for money, and a dozen times do I tell you I have got none. I have got none for myself. You may as well ask that baby for money as ask me.' "'I wish he had never been born,' passionately uttered Lady Levison, "'unless he had had a different father.' That the last sentence, and the bitter scorn of its tone, would have provoked a reprisal from Sir Francis, his flashing countenance betrayed. But at that moment a servant entered the room. "'I beg your pardon, sir. That man Brown forced his way into the hall, and—' "'I can't see him. I won't see him,' interrupted Sir Francis, backing to the furthest corner of the room, in what looked very like abject terror as if he had completely lost his presence of mind. Lady Levison's lips curled. "'We got rid of him, sir, after a dreadful deal of trouble. I was about to say, but while the door was open in the dispute, Mr. Meredith entered. He has gone into the library, sir, and vows he won't stir till he sees you, whether you are sick or well.' A moment's pause, a half-muttered oath, and Sir Francis quitted the room. The servant retired, and Lady Levison caught up her child. "'Oh, Frankie, dear,' she wailed forth, burying her face in his warm neck. "'I'd leave him for good and all if I dared, but I fear he might keep you.' Now the secret was that for the last three days Sir Francis had been desperately ill, obliged to keep his bed, and could see nobody, his life depending upon quiet. Such was the report, or something equivalent to it, which had gone in to Lord Headthelot, or rather to the official office, for that renowned chief was himself out of town. It had also been delivered to all callers at Sir Francis Levison's house, the royal truth being that Sir Francis was as well as you or I, but from something that had transpired touching one of his numerous debts, did not dare to show himself. That morning the matter had been arranged patched up for a time. "'My stars, Levison,' began Mr. Meredith, who was a whipper-in of the ministry, "'what a row there is about you! Why, you look as well as ever you were!' <coughs> "'A great deal better to-day,' coughed Sir Francis. "'To think that you should have chosen the present moment for skulking! Here have I been dancing attendance at your door.' day after day, in a state of incipient fever, enough to put me into a real one, and could neither get admitted nor a letter taken up. I should have blown the house up to-day and got in amidst the flying debris. By the way, are you and my lady too just now? Too? growled Sir Francis. She was stepping into her carriage yesterday when they turned me from the door, and I made inquiry of her. Her ladyship's answer was that she knew nothing either of Francis or his illness. "'Her ladyship is subject to flights of distemper,' chafed Sir Francis. 
What desperate need have you of me just now? Head the lots away, and there's nothing doing. Nothing doing up here. A deal too much doing somewhere else. At least seats in the market. Well? And you ought to have been down there about it three or four days ago. Of course you must step into it. Of course I shan't, returned Sir Francis. To represent West Lynn will not suit me. Not suit you? West Lynn? Why, of all places, it is most suitable. It's close to your own property. If you can call ten miles close, I shall not put up for West Lynn, Meredith. Head the lot came up this morning, said Mr. Meredith. The information somewhat aroused Sir Francis. Head the lot? What brings him back? You. I tell you, Levison, there's a hot row. Head the lot expected you would be at Westland days past, and he has come up in an awful rage. Every additional vote we can count in the house is worth its weight in gold, and you, he says, are allowing Westland to slip through your fingers. You must start for it at once, Levison. Sir Francis mused. Had the alternative been given him, he would have preferred to represent a certain warm place underground rather than West Lynn. But to quit head the lot and the snug post he anticipated would be ruin irretrievable, nothing short of outlawry or the Queen's prison. It was awfully necessary to get his threatened person into Parliament, and he began to turn over in his mind whether he could bring himself to make further acquaintance with West Lynn. The thing must have blown over for good by this time, was the result of his cogitations, unconsciously speaking aloud. "'I can understand your reluctance to appear at West Lynn,' cried Mr. Meredith. "'The scene, unless I mistake, of that notorious affair of yours. But private feelings must give way to public interests, and the best thing you can do is to start. Head the lot is angry enough as it is. He says, had you been down at first, as you ought to have been, you would have slipped in without opposition.' "'But now there will be a contest.' Sir Francis looked up sharply. "'A contest? Who is going to stand the funds?' "'Phew! As if we should let funds be any barrier. "'Have you heard who is in the field?' "'No,' was the apathetic answer. "'Carlyle.' "'Carlyle?' uttered Sir Francis, startled. "'Oh, by George, though! I can't stand against him.' Well, there's the alternative. If you can't, Thornton will. I should run no chance. Westland would not elect me in preference to him. I'm not sure, indeed, that Westland would have me in any case. Nonsense. You know our interest there. Government put in Attlee, and it can put you in. Yes or no, Levison? Yes, answered Sir Francis. An hour's time, and Sir Francis Levison went forth. On his way to be conveyed to West Lynn? Not yet. He turned his steps to Scotland Yard. In considerably less than an hour, the following telegram, marked secret, went down from the head office to the superintendent of police at West Lynn. Is Otway Bettle at West Lynn? If not, where is he? And when will he be returning to it? It elicited a prompt answer. Otway Bettle is not at West Lynn. 
supposed to be in Norway. Movements uncertain. End of chapter 34